please open your Bibles to Psalm 110. Psalm 110. The notes are in your bulletin. Last week we began our study of this magnificent psalm. Only seven verses long, and yet this chapter of the Bible is the most commonly cited text by the New Testament. Specifically verses 1 and verses 4. And last week we looked at the first half of this psalm, the enthronement of King Messiah. where The Lord God calls him and says, come, sit at my right hand and rule. And this week we'll look at the second half, the second great oracle. But let's begin our time by reading Psalm 110 in its entirety. Psalm 110, a psalm of David. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power and holy garments from the womb of the morning, and the dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever, after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. Now, last week, we talked about the first great oracle of the psalm. Oracle meaning the Lord God speaking. And David... And the psalm title here is key. This is one of the reasons we read the psalm titles. They're part of the text. And, and we saw that because we know David wrote this, this, this Lord is someone special. Because if David didn't write this psalm, we might think, well, this is a courtier. This is some official um, using exalted language of the king. But the Lord said to my Lord, and if it's David speaking, then who is David's Lord? This is the very point Jesus makes in the New Testament, that this Messiah figure, this king, is greater than David. And we saw last week, in fact, he is divine. To be able to sit at the right hand of God Almighty, to, to be eternal, to have that type of glory and honor. But now we get to the second great oracle in the psalm, the second great speech of Yahweh, starting in verse 4, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And if you look in your notes, you'll see that we spend the majority of our time on verse four. I'd say at least three quarters of our time will be on this one verse. I think there's some good reason for that. I would suggest this verse is the single most expounded upon, developed, and commentated verse in the entire New Testament. Hebrews 4 Five, six, seven, eight, and nine all deal with this one verse. And so if the author of Hebrews, if God thinks four chapters, five chapters are needed to unpack this, then I want to slow down and see what's here. And I think what we'll see here is going to be glorious, that it will say great things and show great things of our great Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So we're going to look at this in two parts. First, Messiah as great high priest. And second, Messiah is conquering judge. But let's start with Messiah as great high priest. The Lord has sworn, will not change his mind, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now, for most of us, there's categories and words in this verse we're not very familiar and used to. 
unless you come from a Catholic background, not many of us have much of a concept of priesthood. And even if you do come from a Catholic background, what, what you are thinking of in regards to priests is probably significantly different than the idea in the Old Testament, the idea in David's time. So we've got to look at that. And then who's this Melchizedek character? Now, that's just a difficult name to say. Um, there's even another problem in here that you probably aren't even aware of, is that there shouldn't be under the law a priest king. The law forbids it. In fact, think about it. Why did, why did David's predecessor, Saul, lose the, lose the dynasty? It was because he did not wait for Samuel, but acting as priest, he offered a sacrifice that was not permitted for him to offer. He tried to be a priest king. And David knows that. And later on in, in, in Second Chronicles, listen to um, King Uzziah when he grew strong and mighty. Second Chronicles 26, that's a typo there. Second Chronicles 26, 16 to 20. When he was strong, he grew proud to his destruction. For he was unfaithful to the Lord his God. And he entered the temple of the Lord to burn incense on the altar of incense. But Azariah the priest went in after him with 80 priests of the Lord who were men of valor and they withstood King Uzziah and said to him, it is not for you, Uzziah, to burn incense to the Lord, but for the priests, the sons of Aaron, who are consecrated to burn incense. Go out of the sanctuary if you have done wrong and it will bring you no honor from the Lord God. But then Uzziah was angry and he had a censer in his hand to burn incense. And when he became angry, the priest's leprosy broke out on his forehead in the presence of the priests in the house of the Lord by the altar of incense. And Azariah, the chief priest, and all the priests looked at him and behold, he was leprous in his forehead and they rushed him out quickly and he hurried himself to, uh, to go out because the Lord had struck him. And King Uzziah was a leper to the day of his death and being a leper lived in a separate house for he was excluded from the house of the Lord and Jotham his son was king over the king's household governing the people. So it's very clear in David's day, you don't mix these two things. Bad things happen. Judgment from God results when kings attempt to act as priests. And again, that's probably not familiar to most of us. So if you're an Israelite reading the book of Psalms and you get to Psalm 110, this, this should make you slow down and go, whoa, 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 what? Because this person is a king. They're going to rule. They have a scepter. They're sitting on a throne. This is clearly a king. Last week, we saw how this psalm ties in with the Davidic covenant in 2 Samuel 7 and, and Psalm 2. This is clearly a king figure. And this king figure, now David says, this coming Messiah king figure is going to be a priest. But how, how can he be the Davidic king and a priest without incurring the judgment of Uzziah, without incurring the judgment of Saul? And that's where things get interesting. That's where things get interesting. The kingship was tied to the tribe of Judah. Um, as early back as, as Genesis 49, verse 10, when, when Jacob, uh, as he's getting ready to die, is prophesying over his sons, he says, and the scepter, the scepter of rule, the symbol of rule, shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes. So we know Judah is the tribe of kingship. But the sons of Aaron, the Levites, they're the priests. So, so how is this going to work? And what we're going to see is David has a very deep grasp of the Bible. And then one of the reasons we're slowing down and taking so much time with this is I am constantly amazed and fascinated with the intertextuality of the Bible, the way the Bible 
weaves itself together. The knowledge of David of the Old Testament. And then we're going to see the knowledge of the writer of Hebrews of this. And so we're going to to eventually get to go back. In fact, if you turn in your Bibles, keep your thumb here. We're going to go back to Genesis 14. Melchizedek only appears in three places in the entire Bible. This psalm, three or four verses in Genesis 14, and then three or four chapters, four or five chapters in Hebrews. So we're going to go back to Genesis 14, because we're not going to be able to make much sense of what David is doing here, what David is saying, unless we get this encounter firmly in view. Genesis 14. And I think we'll just start at verse 1, just to get the story in line. This is part of the Abraham story. He and Lot have just parted ways in chapter 13. Lot went and settled by Sodom and Gomorrah, and Abraham went to the right. Um, in the days of Arafel, king of Shinar, Arioch, king of Elasar, Chedalimur, king of Elam, and Tidal, king of Goim, these kings made war with Bera, king of Sodom, Bersha, king of Gomorrah, Shinab, king of Adma, Shember, king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar. Let me just pause. They say kings, but I don't want you to think of like World War II armies. King was the title for a ruler. These are probably just city rulers. Um, you could be the, the mayor, if you were, of a, of a local city. It had some defenses. These are local kings, but we're not thinking of big troop divisions. We're not thinking of giant armies. There's probably some thousands of men, maybe. And four kings go up against five kings. Four local rulers go up against five local rulers. And all these joined forces in the Valley of Sedim, that is, the Salt Sea. Twelve years they had served Chedalimer, but in the thirteenth year they rebelled. In the fourteenth year, Chedalimer and the kings who were with him came and defeated Rephaim and Ashtaroth Karnaim and Zuzim and Ham and Amin and Shava Kiriathim and the Horites. Horatites, sorry. By the way, a good key when you're reading these names is just sound confident and go with it, and people will. <laughs> People will, and if you really can't throw in a guttural here or there, you know, sort of the horchaim, you know, and then um, it's, it's impressive. It's impressive. These, these are our best English transliterations of Hebrew names. Um, and, uh, okay. Then the, um, they turned, verse 7, and came back to En Mishpat, that is Kadesh, and defeated all the country of the Amalekites and also the Ammonites who were dwelling in Hazazor Tamar. Then the king of Sodom and the king of Demorah, the king of Adma, the king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zor, went out, and they joined battle in the valley of Sidim with Chedalimer, king of Elam, Tadal, king of Goim, Amraphel, king of Shinar, Arioch, king of Elasar, four kings against five. Now, the valley of Sidim was full of bitumen pits. And as the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, some fell in them, and the rest fled into the hill country. So they're defeated. They're rooted. The kings of Sodom and Gomorrah and that, that alliance is rooted. The, the people flee. Some of the people fall in the tar pits. Um, so they took all the possessions of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their provisions and went away. They also took Lot, the son of Abram's brother, who is dwelling in Sodom and his possessions, and went their way. So this is like a raiding party. They come in, they swoop in, there's a battle, the, the, the kings are, are routed, they grab whatever is, is portable, they grab the loot, they grab the women, they grab the able workers, and they head up north. Then one who had escaped came and told Abram, the Hebrew, who was living by the oaks of Mamre, the Amorite, brother of Eskol and of Aner. 
These were allies of Abram's. When Abram brings up his group, it's not just him and his men, but he's got a little coalition as well. They're allies of Abram. And um, when Abram heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive, he led forth his trained men. Born in his house, 318 of them, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. And he divided his forces against them by night, he and his servants, and defeated them and pursued them to Habah, north of Damascus. Then he brought back all the possessions and also brought back his kinsmen Lot with his possessions and the women and the people. So he is victorious. The Lord grants him victory. He and his coalition go up north and they do a counter strike and they grab the people, they grab the possessions and they head back down south. After his return from the defeat of Chedalemer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Sheva, that is the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High and blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. And the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the persons, but take the goods for yourselves. Which, this isn't the king of Sodom being particularly generous. This was the custom in that day. If someone went out and and raided, you did get the spoils, you got the people. That was sort of the way things were done. Giving the persons, but take the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord, God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I should not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you say, I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing but what your young men have eaten and share of the men who went with me. Let Aner, Eskol, and Mamre take their share. So Abram comes back, and two men come out to greet him, the king of Sodom and the king of Salem. And, and we're going to deal with Melchizedek, the king of Salem, in a second, but let's just deal with the king of Sodom. He's introduced first, and in some senses, the Melchizedek few verses interrupt the flow. I mean, I mean, look at that. In verse 17, after his defeat from Shedelamer, the kings who were with him and the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Sheva, that is the king's valley. And if you skip to verse 21, and the king of Sodom said, you see how the, the Melchizedek episode, in some senses, almost interrupts the flow of the narrative. Because what's the contrast here with, with the king of Sodom, what we're going to see, the contrast from Lot, is that when Lot had to choose where he was going to go dwell, he chose the economic safety. He chose dwelling by the cities. And in stark contrast to this, Abraham says, or Abram at this point in the story says, no, I'm not going to receive anything from you. I'm trusting in the Lord alone. So, so we see a contrast between the faithfulness of Abraham, or Abram, in chapter 14, and Lot's sort of uh, materialistic focus. Lot going where there's clearly structures in place. Abraham, I'm going to keep saying that, aren't I? Abram is, is, doesn't want any help from these pagans. He's, he knows the Lord has made him promises, and he's trusting in that. So he says, look, just give my men some food. The other guys can take their share. I'm not taking anything from you. Now notice the contrast between Abram's dealings with the king of Sodom and Melchizedek. He, to quote, there's Jeff, he gives him the Heisman. He gives the king of Sodom the Heisman. Um, and yet out comes Melchizedek, and Abram tithes to him. That, that's amazing. Now, what's also striking is Melchizedek just shows up, this guy. Abraham tithes to him. He gives, he gives Abram some food. He blesses him, and then he's gone. And we never hear from him again. And so David's reading this account as, as every good king of Israel, according to Deuteronomy, was supposed to read from their handwritten copy of the law every day. 
And, and this must have struck a chord with him. Who is, who is this Melchizedek? Well, let's start by filling some of these blanks in. First off, names back then mean something. And Melchizedek means king of righteousness. It comes from two Hebrew roots, Melech, which means king, and Zedach, or Zedech, which means righteous. That's, that's my, my son's name, Zadok, is, is, comes from that root. So Melech Zedek, king of righteousness. And that's his name, his title, is he's the king of Salem. Now does anyone here know what Salom, or in Arabic, Salam, or Shalom means? It means peace, well-being. So Salem means peace, and it's very likely, there's a number of cities named Salem back in those days, but it seems very likely this actually is the city that will be ultimately taken by David as the Jebusite stronghold, Jerusalem. So, so David's reading this, and here comes this king out, and he's trying to think who this guy is that Abraham's offering him tithes to, and he's, he's a king of righteousness, and you know, the, the, the Davidic king's supposed to be a, a king of righteousness, and he's a king of peace. And it looks an awful lot like he might actually be the king of the city David has just made the capital. Because in 2 Samuel 7, when the Davidic covenant is made, it's only a chapter after David has just moved the ark to Jerusalem. So, so Melchizedek, his name is king of righteousness. He's Salem, the city he's king of, is the city of peace, very likely Jerusalem which David had made the capital after taking it. Um, it was the city of the Jebusites. Um, and so what else can we make of this as we try to think through this character is? Well, one thing, again, that's not as immediately obvious to us is he's greater than, Melchizedek is greater than, this is point three, and precedes Aaron as priest. Now, this doesn't work as clearly in our Western culture, but you go to some of the older cultures in the East, in China, they still have this notion that the, the, the grandfather is greater than the father, the great-grandfather is greater than the grandfather, and so on. The line weakens as it goes forward. You know, not, nowadays, it, because of the growth in technology, we think of old people as more likely to be useless. But back then, the, the, the older was greater. That, that's, the, that's the assumption of Jesus' argument. How can David call him Lord, who is his descendant? Because that's the question he asked the Pharisees. Because their logic, obviously David's descendant cannot be as great as David. But here's Abraham giving tithes. I mean, Abraham's the patriarch of patriarchs. Abraham's the, the recipient of, of the covenant of salvation by which we are saved. Abraham. And out comes this king that we don't know anything about. He doesn't get a genealogy. Just If you read through Genesis, just about every major character who's a good guy gets a genealogy. No genealogy from Melchizedek. Most of the good guys get, get a, a time of death, how long they live. Nope, that doesn't happen. He just shows up. And somehow Abraham recognizes in him some sort of kinship, some sort of we, we worship the same God. And he tithes to him. And Melchizedek blesses Abram. Now, some people have suggested that this Melchizedek character is a pre-incarnate Christ. It's possible. I don't think so. It's possible. 
Um, One of the questions is, how is this guy worshiping the living God? Well, it's not too hard to believe that this close to the flood, if you go to the genealogies, we're not very far out from the flood, that there are still people who who are aware of, who who tell the story of the flood. There's still oral tradition. He's a worshiper of, of God Most High. He doesn't know the Lord's covenant name, Yahweh, but he's a worshiper of Elohim Most High, which is also a title that Abram is quite happy to use. Look at verse um, 22. Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord God most high. And so he's this priest king of, of Salem, and he recognizes something in, in Abram. He, he's somehow aware that they worship the same God. And he comes out, and he offers him food, and he blesses him. And Abram astonishingly tithes to him. This is the first occurrence of tithing in the Bible, the giving of a tenth. So if you're a thoughtful Hebrew reader, if you're trying to picture David's mindset, this is a big enigma. This is a big question mark. What is going on here? What is going on here? And David, I think, I think this is part of David's logic, sees in this some sort of foreshadowing of of both himself. After all, he has just united the, the political sphere and the religious sphere by bringing the ark to Jerusalem. Prior, the political capital, David had made Jerusalem, and the, the religious capital is wherever the ark was. But by David, by bringing the ark to Jerusalem, he unites the two. And there are some senses in which David in his life had done some sort of priestly things. He danced in front of the ark when it came to Jerusalem in a priest's ephod. He ate the, presence, the bread of the presence and the showbread. Now, he wasn't a priest, but there's definitely some senses in which some of the things David did kind of overlap. Maybe David sees some sort of kinship, some sort of, hey, he's, he's kind of like doing what I'm doing. He's the king of the same city that I'm king of. But what it does do is it gives David the category that there can, in fact, be a priest king. Even though under the Mosaic law, such a thing could not happen. There's nothing in principle about it that's immoral. There's nothing in principle about it that's wrong because after all, here is a priest king that Abram honors. And that's the key. It gives David this category. Something before the law, there's this precedent for priest king that even though in the Mosaic law forbids and strictly punishes those who would attempt to unite the two, it can happen. And David under the inspiration of the Spirit, begins to speak about his greater descendants. So we've got to pause here now because we've introduced this concept of priesthood, which, again, most of us are not very familiar with. This would have been bread and butter in the ancient world. This would have been obvious what these categories mean, but most of us aren't familiar with these categories. Or if we are, they're more tainted with, with our assumptions from the Roman Catholic Church than anything. But, but back then, the priests were all over the place. When, when God instituted the Levitic priesthood, the sons of Aaron, he wasn't creating priesthood. He was institutionalizing it for his people. But priests existed as far back as we can go. It's only recently that we've got rid of this notion that it's a fearful thing to come before the presence of God. It's only, it's only a recent thing we sort of run in with the high five, hey, what's up, God, attitude. People have long understood the holiness of God, and they've long understood, I need somebody to go and intercede for me. I need somebody to, to act as the go-between. I need somebody to stand in between and, and, and help smooth things out. And that was the function of priests. We've talked before about how a prophet stands between the people and God, speaking to the people for God. Right? That's the function of the prophet. He's the go-between. Moses goes up on the mountain, comes back down, and he gives the message to the people. The priest is in between facing the other way. 
He stands between God and men for the people. So let's just quickly look at the four functions of the Aaronic or Levitic priesthood, just to grasp what we're talking about. Because David is now saying, and you can go back to Psalm 110, David is now saying that this Messiah, this Davidic king, will also be a priest. So what does that mean? What, 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 how does that change what we are to expect from him? How does that develop and broaden? And by the way, this psalm does tremendous things in developing and, and thickening and broadening the, the doctrine of Messiah up to this point. Psalm 2 unites the streams and threads of sonship and kingship and messiahship. They're all one person. And now Psalm 110 adds in this Messiah who is son, who is king, will also be priest. We're starting to, to get this fully formed messianic theology from the Old Testament coming together. So, what did the Aaronic priesthood do? Well, first, it was the foundation of the Mosaic Covenant. Um, we're going to see that in Hebrews 7, when we turn to Hebrews, that, that the, the Mosaic Covenant, the covenant at Sinai, was founded upon the priesthood. It wasn't founded upon the Ten Commandments. It was founded upon the priesthood. And page for page, verse for verse, there is more ink spent on the priesthood than anything in the Pentateuch. It's the foundation of the Mosaic Covenant. And the priests comforted and sympathized with the people. That was another function. You know, when I do sort of pastoral counseling, it is in some sense a priestly function. When we counsel each other, that, that's something priests would do. Third, they offered sacrifices for men's sins to God. We saw that Uzziah wanted to offer it. He wanted to wave the incense, but that, that was what priests did. And third, they interceded for men to God as their advocates. They pleaded with God. They prayed for the people. They appealed to God. That's, that's what priests do. So when you think of priesthood, this, this is what we're thinking about, these types of things. The foundation of the covenant, somebody who comforts and sympathizes with the people, someone who offers sacrifices for the sins of men, someone who intercedes with God for men. That, that's a priest. And now we're hearing from Psalm 110 that this coming messianic king, this greater son of great David, is going to be a priest. Well, that's interesting. I wonder what that means he's going to do. Now, we, we can't get there from Psalm 110. We can't predict the cross. We can't predict the priesthood of Jesus in, in its fullest sense. But, but now turn over to, he, to Hebrews chapter 4. Because the fulfillment of this, what this sets up, you know, Psalm 110 puts the ball in the T, and then the author of Hebrews just, just drives it right down, just showing how this gets fulfilled. And it's glorious. Jesus Christ is our great high priest. Now we're going to start with point two. I'm just going to work our way through Hebrews, even though it's going to mean we're going to go point two, then one, then three, then four. But if it'll be easier for you if we just work our way through Hebrews, looking at how the author of Hebrews shows how Jesus fulfills all these aspects of priesthood and not only fulfills them, so much better, so much greater, so much more wondrously. So first, point two, Jesus perfectly comforts and sympathizes with us. Jesus perfectly comforts and sympathizes with us. 4.14 4, to 5.6. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. 
Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. For every high priest chosen from the people is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God. There's where I get my definition of priesthood. Acting on behalf of men in relation to God. To offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and the wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifices for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. And no one takes this honor on himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was, so also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said, you are my son, today I have begotten you. That's Psalm 2. And he also said in another place, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So, the author of Hebrews says Jesus is a high priest and based on his life, based on his temptation, based on his suffering, he can sympathize with you. If you're struggling, if you are weak and heavy laden, if you are burdened, if you are full of anguish, you have a high priest who can sympathize with you. And these might be categories that we're not used to. These are categories to be celebrated. Praise God that we have not just a savior, but a high priest. Praise God that we have not just a sacrifice for sin, but one who can sympathize with us, who can comfort us right now. It's the argument made from Hebrews. So he perfectly comforts and sympathizes with us. Now, back to point one. Turn over to chapter six, verse 17. Jesus announces a new and better covenant. Jesus announces a new and better covenant. We saw the notion of this already. Jesus didn't grab the priesthood. He didn't declare, I'm going to be a priest. It was by the decree of his father. The Lord swearing an oath. Chapter 6, starting in verse 17, we read, So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone, a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now we're looking at the certainty but there's some further implications of that. Let's go to 7.11. The author of Hebrews has thought a long and hard about this verse and its implications. Now, if perfection had been attainable through Levitic priesthood, for under it the people received the law. You see, there's, there's where I say the law was given on the basis or upon the priesthood. For under it the people were given the law what further need would there have been for another priest to arrive after the order of Melchizedek rather than the one named after the order of Aaron? Which is what he's saying is this. Psalm 110, by its announcing that the Messiah would not be a priest from the tribe of Levi, but from the tribe of Judah, would be a priest after the order of Melchizedek, not after the order of Aaron. What it does is, if you think about it, it makes it clear that the, the Aaronic priesthood is insufficient. It's not going to get us all the way there. If I tell my son that someday in the future we're going to need to buy a new car, one of the things my son knows is the car we have now will not be the car we have for the rest of our life. And when David in Psalm 110 says there's going to be this new priesthood, does that in not a sense show the insufficiency of the Aaron priesthood? 
That, that's what the author of Hebrews is saying, that by announcing it, it's making it, it's announcing that there will be a day when the Levitic priesthood will become obsolete. Because if the, that's what he says, if it were perfect, there would be no need to speak of another. Verse 12, for when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. Further, by bringing in a new priesthood, the author of Hebrews says, David, in announcing this, he, the author of Hebrews is saying this is all in Psalm 110.4, that by announcing this new priesthood, two things happen. We know that the priesthood of Levi is insufficient, and we know the covenant resting upon it is insufficient. The priesthood was given on top of, the law was given on top of the priesthood. He says if there's a change of priesthood, there is necessarily a change of law as well. For the one in whom these things are spoken belong to another tribe from which there no one has ever served at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was ascended from Judah and is connected with that tribe. That Moses said nothing about priests. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but on the power of an indestructible life. This, this is part of the reason why I don't think Melchizedek was pre-incarnate Christ. Verse 15, Jesus arises in the likeness. He's like Melchizedek, which would mean he's not Melchizedek. Um, and, and this priesthood is not a priesthood of genetic descent, but it's a priesthood of divine fiat, decree. For it is witnessed of him, and the quotation of our verse, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. On the one hand, a former commandment was set aside because of its weakness and uselessness. Wow, he's getting pretty harsh on the law and the Levitic priesthood. For the law made nothing perfect, but on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. And it was not without an oath for those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath. But this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. You tracking that logic there? I know it's, I know it's tricksy, but it's, it's important. What the author of Hebrews is saying is the announcement of a new covenant that Jesus brings, the announcement of a new covenant the apostles preach is there in seed form embedded in Psalm 110 and other texts. It's literally there. If you stop and think about it, what are the implications of the fact that the promised Messiah and King and Son of David is going to be a priest in a different order than the priesthood of Levi. What are the implications? And the writer of Hebrews says the implications are right there. One, it announces the insufficiency of the priesthood of Levi, and it announces the insufficiency of the covenant upon which it is based. This is confirming, this is deep New Testament thought showing that the gospel and the new covenant is perfectly consistent doesn't contradict or overthrow the Old Testament. Rather, the Old Testament was looking for it. The Old Testament was anticipating it. The Old Testament was predicting it. Within the Old Testament law itself are announcements that the law is fully aware it isn't going to get the job done. You just have to read Deuteronomy 29 where Moses says, now look, when you fail and God drives you out of the land, this is what's going to happen. I mean, you read through Deuteronomy, Moses is well aware this is only going to work for so long. We're going to need something better. And what we get is a better priest. We get a better covenant. Third, Jesus intercedes for us before God's very throne. Let's just keep reading. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Now he's, now he's 
focusing on that word. Notice all these points are coming out of different words in that verse. Now he's focusing on the word forever. The Lord has sworn and will not change your mind. You are a priest forever. And by the way, that's the blank for 1B. He will be an eternal priest. He'll be an eternal priest. But here, the author of Hebrews is showing that this is a priesthood also that isn't going to end. You can't go back to the Levitic priesthood if this Melchizedekian priest is a forever priest. Consequently, verse 25, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. Understand that, that until Christ returns, he will never stop pleading our behalf before the Father's throne. He will never stop lifting up our prayers. He'll never stop petitioning his Father. We sing that great song, Before the Throne of God Above. That, that's what that's talking about. Right now, Jesus is saving us. Not, not by paying for our sin. That, that was once for all done, but by praying, interceding on our behalf, sanctifying us. We talk about how we've got to make it to the end and we're trusting in our Savior not to drop us. We're trusting in our Savior to bring us safe all the way to the end. We're trusting that he who began a good work will complete it. He will because he doesn't take a day off and his priesthood never comes to an end and he always lives to intercede on our behalf. When you feel dirty and filthy and unfaithful and unfit to come before God's throne, there is one who is righteous, there is one who is pure, there is one who is holy on your behalf, pleading your case night and day. Isn't it great that we have a high priest like this? He intercedes for us before God's throne. And, and fourth, he offered a final and perfect sacrifice. All of this tied to Jesus' priesthood and all of this found in one verse in the Old Testament. The Bible is truly amazing in its depth. He offered a final and perfect sacrifice. Let's just jump over to chapter 9, picking it up in verse 11. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come through, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all, into the holy place, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinklings of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of sins, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? This is the amazing thing. Jesus is the priest. He's also the sacrifice. Keep reading Hebrews. He's also the altar. So if you're an Israelite and you're watching the sacrificial system happen, every piece of it is pointing to Jesus. The priest who's standing offering the sacrifice, that Jesus does that. The animal lying on the altar, that's Jesus, the Lamb of God slain from the foundation of the world. The altar itself, that's Jesus and he offers a final and perfect sacrifice. One of the points the author of Hebrews makes is the, the, the Levites 
offer sacrifices over and over and over and over. And they first have to offer a sacrifice for themselves and their own sins, and then they got to keep going over and over. And that's, he's pointing out another hint that there's some weakness to the Levitic priesthood. But here Jesus, our great high priest, enters into the very throne of God, and he offers a sacrifice once for all, and it is a better sacrifice. It is a perfect sacrifice. It is a sacrifice that does not need to be repeated. It is a sufficient sacrifice. All of this tied to Jesus' priesthood. And so, so this, this, this key component of the Messiah announced in Psalm 110 in, in, in many respects sets up, anticipates the gospel. Our great high priest, our savior, our king comes and he, he dies on a cross in ignominy. We're going to celebrate that in a few minutes at the Lord's table. He tastes death so that we do not have to. And then, even though he's ascended into heaven by virtue of the resurrection, and the Lord says, come, sit at my right hand, he, he doesn't cease from his work on our behalf. And he comforts us, and he intercedes for us. And we are invited, you are invited, to share in his once-for-all perfect sacrifice. You can share in that by faith. You can receive the blessing of, of this priesthood. You can receive the blessing of this sacrifice, the forgiveness of sins, through faith, through trusting in him. Well, Turn back to Psalm 110, and we will very briefly look at this last point. Very briefly. The final verses, the final three verses, summarize again his victory. This is a triumphant psalm. He's, the, the coronation is in verse 1, where he sits down at the right hand of God. The consecration as priest is in verse 4, and all around it is just the result now, what's interesting here is the, the term of address now shifts from speaking about and to, to the Lord's anointed to now speaking to the Lord. Notice in verse 1, the Lord says to my Lord, Yahweh says to my Adonai, sit at my right hand. But in verse 5, the Lord is at your right hand. So who is, who is he speaking to here? Speaking to Yahweh. The address has shifted. The point is this. The decree made in verse 1, sit at my right hand, is completed. In verse 1, the, the Messiah is called to take a seat. In verse 5, David declares, it's happened. He is at your right hand. And now what's the result of that? What's the result of Jesus' enthronement, his exaltation? Well, one of the results is his coming judgment. Let me read it in, in, in bloody and brutal terms. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook, by the way, and therefore he'll lift up his head. Now, we know that that's not now. Now is the mediated rule. Now is, is verse 2. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter rule in the midst of your enemies. It's the contested rule. We're looking here for a specific day. He will shatter kings, verse 5, on the day of his wrath. There is a day coming when he will be victorious, when he will judge the earth. And all of this, point A, is founded upon the Lord's decree. This is the Lord's plan. The Lord has made him king. The Lord has made him priest. And this coming judgment is from the Lord. And it will be sudden and swift. There's, there's a tricky phrase at the end. He'll drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he'll lift up his head and commentators are all divided over it. But I think the best explanation is offered by one commentator is 
this, this assault, this military conquest will not take breaks. Um, there's a, I'll just read the quote. He will stand only for a short time to refresh himself, and in order then to fight afresh, he will unceasingly pursue his work of victory without giving himself any time for rest or sojourn. And therefore, as the reward of it, he will lift up his head high as the victor. I think that's probably the best understanding of that, that last verse. It will be swift. It will be unrelenting. It won't come in stages. It will be a worldwide conquest. Unrelenting. Absolute. Without mercy. See, that's, that's the thing. We live in the day of mercy. We live in the day where the gospel is offered. We live in the day where pardon is offered. When Christ comes back, it is the day of perfect justice. Righteous. He's victorious and righteous. And there's so much more we could say about that, but we don't have time to celebrate the Lord's table. But I just want to pause by saying this. There's so much accomplished in the cross, so much accomplished. Christ enters into his kingship. He enters into his priesthood at the ascension. And he is now seated at the right hand, seated at the right hand of God the Father. And he's ruling among the midst of his enemies, but there is a day coming. It could be soon. It could be today. We're... Pardon and forgiveness are no more. The king will come to claim what is his, and he will dash his enemies. And so we're offered this sacrifice, and if we reject it, know that judgment and fury and wrath will be your share. And of course, for us, that is our hope. As we look at a world filled with injustice, the wrongs will be righted. The king will come. This is the great echo of the close of the book of Psalms. The king is coming. The king is coming. Psalm 96, 13. Before the Lord, he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in faithfulness. Psalm 98, 9. The Lord, he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with equity. And we read last week in, in Revelation 19 the picture of the Lord coming on a white horse with his host of armies to make war with the nations. He comes. But today, today is a day of salvation. Today, and I'll call the ushers up, is a day that we celebrate the salvation that he has wrought for us. We're to take the Lord's table. This sacrifice that is given for us this sacrifice that atones for our sins is symbolized here. This is not the sacrifice itself. It was made once for all. But the Lord says as often as we eat and drink, we remember and proclaim it. In 1 Corinthians 11, Paul warns us to examine ourselves before we eat, lest we eat in an unworthy way. So let's just take a moment and pray. Um, actually, let's, we'll do that as we pass the bread out so, to conserve time. So let's, let's read the passage in 1 Corinthians. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. We are now going to take bread. Let's examine ourselves and come to the table worthy.